you pause with me? And would you just allow yourself to take a deep breath, especially if you're a parent of a young child, just take a deep breath or two or three or four. Take a deep breath, and we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to give us today what God desires to give us. Because we come to the living word because we're hungry and God wants to fill us. So would you take a moment And even you kids, if you could just take a big deep breath in through your nose. In the scriptures, the breath is the same word for spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we are inviting you to be our comforter, our teacher, our guide. Would you share with us what you have for us today? In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm so curious, especially with the number of educators we have in this space and the number of kids we have in this space. Raise your hand if you're a person under 15 years old. Raise your hand if you're under 15 years old. Okay, kids, do you have your ears? Are you listening? Okay. I'm curious. How many of you have heard of the zombie fungus that take over, takes over ants' brains and controls their bodies? You have? How many of you grown-ups have heard about it? Right? It's not every day I get to start off a sermon that way. But seriously, this thing is amazing. If you read about it, amazing in a sort of creepy and sinister way, if you like that sort of thing. But listen to this. Ed Young describes this. This fungus doesn't kill the ant's brain, unlike other funguses where it eats their brain. It actually does this thin layer and takes over the brain. It takes over their muscles, and it makes them do things that they wouldn't normally do. It compels the ant to leave the safety of the nest and to climb up to a height of 25 centimeters on a plant stalk. Most of the time, the plant stalk is over the colony's pathways where all the ants would congregate and forage and be able to gather food and it makes it lock its mandibles into a leaf, and then it grows this spore bulbous thing out the top of its head, and 25 centimeters just so happens to be the perfect humidity and temperature for growing this fungus, so it controls it to get to the exact precise location where it can take over its brain, and then the spores rain down on all of the sisters in the colony so that suddenly, the entire colony are like zombies. They're alive, but not really. Isn't that crazy how it takes over the entire colony? Now, here's the name. Um, the next slide shows this type of fungus so that you can all say it with me. That's not quite the one. Uh, not quite the If you have that whole name right there, it's uh, Ophicordycepsis undilateris. It sounds like I'm reciting Latin. Wow, I didn't know I was going to do Latin uh, recitation today. Um, so it's a takeover of the uniquely malevolent kind. The ant's body is taken over for the purpose of the fungus, and it uses it kind of like a walkie-talkie to communicate with the rest of the organisms of the, of the fungus. I want you to hold that thought for a moment. It's been a couple weeks, but we're going back into our series on the seven churches of Revelation. 
These are letters that Jesus wrote through John, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that the church today, kids, what's the church today? Pastor Steve said it. Say Sardis. Can you say it again? Sardis. Sardis. I want you to think about what Sardis has to do with zombies because you're going to see a connection. But before we go there, you'll remember that each of the letters has four parts and almost all of them have these parts. You'll notice one difference today with this letter, but it has an introduction from Jesus, a way that the character of Christ especially ministers to that group of people. It has an affirmation for that church, a rebuke for the church, and a promise for those who stay true and who stay faithful. So as we look into the church, this letter to Sardis today, I want you to be listening for how it might have to do with zombie ants. But before we get there, let's go to this map of the seven churches for a moment so you can see right where Sardis is. We've talked about each of these other ones. We have two left, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Sardis right there, you can see where it is. Let's look at where Sardis was in the world at this time so that we can help to hear the words in context. Because remember, these words are for us, and they were also written to a specific time and place and people. So Sardis of modern Sart in the Manisa province of Turkey is the cap, was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. It was one of the important cities in the Persian Empire, the seat of the proconsul under the Roman Empire, and the metropolis where in Roman and Byzantine times, it was the center of life for the province of Lydia. This was a very important city. Now, one of the most impressive ruins that you're about to see right now was in this amazing gymnasium, a Greek gymnasium and a Roman bathhouse. You see, the gymnasium was the center of Greek culture. It was the place where they promoted the Hellenistic thought, the worldview that the human being was the center of the universe. Within the gymnasium, students trained their minds and trained their bodies. They read literature to Greek, of Greek gods. They studied mathematics and philosophy and medicine. And they also enjoyed the pleasures and the vices in the Roman baths. So get this. In the excavation of this huge gymnasium and this bathhouse, they discovered something very surprising. In Sardis, a synagogue. A synagogue with Hebrew as well as Greek, Christian as well as Jewish symbolism. Excavations in the last century, century produced the most impressive synagogue in the Western diaspora, yet discovered in antiquity. 80 Greek symbols, seven Hebrew inscriptions, numerous mosaic floors. This immoral, self-glorifying gymnasium in the corner of this, archaeologists have uncovered this largest synagogue yet to be found. In this large bath gymnasium complex, this synagogue was likely used for at least 450 to 500 years. So people have wondered, what was this about? Why? Uh, in, is this presence, this presence of the synagogue in this place, there are defaced pagan, pagan symbols, a public fountain, a table to the Roman eagles, a pair of icons typically representing the goddess Cybele. Why was all of this in the same place as the Roman bath and the gymnasium? 
Did the Jews in Sardis place their synagogue in the gymnasium in order to influence the pagan culture around them? Or had they, no, that wasn't the one. Had they so adapted the pagan way of life that they saw no discrepancy between worshiping God and participating in the activities of the gymnasium? In the apes of the gymnasium, there's a place where we look to to see who has authority there. And right there we see there is a statue to Caesar Augustus. Now, normally there could be Hermes or Hercules or Apollo or Athena there, but Caesar was the last word, truth, authority in that place. Now, into this context, hear the word of the Lord. Imagine that you are a first century Christian in Sardis who's worshiping in the Roman, Greek, the bathhouse, the gymnasium. That's where your synagogue is. Now hear the word that Jesus says to you. Revelation 3, verse 1, it begins, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Those are who are victorious, like them, will be dressed in white. I will never blot out their names from the book of life, but will acknowledge their names before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice what Jesus says here. We see immediately that something is missing that was in all the other letters. In the beginning, we always start with a commendation, the affirmation, but it's missing for this church. There's not the, the global affirmation to this body. We get to some specifics later where some people in the group, some individuals are commended by Jesus, but the others are said to have fallen asleep. So we go straight to the rebuke. We get the word nominal from the Greek word name. Christians who are Christian in name only are called nominal Christians. Hollywood has a name for those. Christians who are Christians in name only could be called zombies. Zombies, right? They're not really alive, but not really dead. They're in this in-between state, walking around. Alive, acting alive, but they're really dead. In Sardis, the name actually means the escaping ones or those who come out, having a form of godliness, as Paul said, but denying its power. These were the people brought out of darkness into his marvelous light, but who have forgotten the power of that. So Jesus says, you are dead, you're asleep, you're walking around as if you're alive, you have these deeds, but you're really asleep. As Jesus speaks to Stardust, we find that he's not interested in labels, he's interested in life. Jesus isn't interested in reputation, but he's interested in reality. 
As one author said, reputation is what people think you are, but reality is what Jesus knows you are. Some of the saddest words in the Bible come in the story of this guy, maybe the kids can know. He was super strong. He killed thousands of his enemy. He was an impressive leader. He was famous in his time. But the Bible says that this man, think about it, did not know that the spirit had left him. Yeah, you're good. He did not know that the spirit had left him. And so Jesus is saying similarly, you didn't know that you were not fully alive, that the spirit had left you. You're doing these deeds, you're going about this thing, but yet you are not fully alive. So the question is, where is the spirit? For this church, though dead, was full of activity. Jesus says that they were doing deeds, but they were incomplete. So if you can imagine this synagogue in this gymnasium, in this bathhouse complex, they were coming there, they were worshiping. We have the symbols, the Greek symbols and the Hebrew symbols that they were worshiping there. They were singing songs. Likely they were expanding on the word of God. They had good fellowship. And yet Jesus says you are asleep. That it's more than just the outward form that makes you alive. It's not just doing the right things, but being enlivened by the Spirit. God longs for something more, he says. Not just mindlessly following like the ants, but you see this kingdom way that Jesus invites us to is something that takes our whole life, that we get the chance to participate in and be a part of. I read this quote in a book this week. It said, you cannot do the work of the kingdom of God in the way of the world. So we don't know what their motive was for having this location, but perhaps they were trying to do the work of God in the way of the world. Jesus came to show a different way. The enemy would have us walk around like zombies, asleep or alive-ish, not really alive. But God wants to allow us to live out the plans and the purposes of the kingdom of God. Jesus showed us a powerful love a love that comes from outside of ourselves, a love that is moved deeply by suffering. How many of you have been heartbroken to see what's happening in our world right now? How many of you have wept and cried over what is happening with suffering right now? This love that comes in from outside of us, in the, in the world when we see chaos, we're moved by it. Because as we live, as we work, as we watch the news, as we read the news, there is this miraculous care and compassion that leads us to action in the world because we're moved by something that is of God. So how does Christ present himself to this particular church that is asleep? Let's go back up to where it actually begins, which is the image of Christ. It says, to the one with the sevenfold spirit of God who holds the seven stars. The sevenfold spirit of God, the only one who is able to wake up sleepers is God. The only one who can revive our hearts is the spirit of God. The seven spirits, the spirit of, of God, the living God comes to those churches, these stars, and holds them and gives them life and spirit and health. 
these ones experience God enlivening them? Have you ever just felt numb? Have you ever felt like you want to look away and not be moved by things, or maybe you feel that in work or in parenting, but something happens inside you that's outside yourself and God wakes you up in a new way? That's what he's saying. Look to the one who has the spirits. Look, the seven spirits, who holds the seven stars? He's saying, I'm the source of real life. You're asleep, you're dead, you're walking around going through the motions. There's not much there, but I can wake you up. Only God is able to wake the sleepers. Only God can renew our hearts. And then he calls out in verse 4 and 5, he says, yet some of you are wearing robes of white. Now, when prisoners were set free, they were given white robes because they were not allowed to have that color, that color of freedom and victory and purity, the priesthood. There was, that's, white has so much symbolism in the scripture, but they were able to walk forward into freedom. And so therefore, these individuals, these ones are shining and radiant. The original language says, pertaining to the brightness, the shining, illuminating radiance, that they were wearing something that was given them Paul says that everyone who is baptized into Christ has put on Christ, Galatians 3.27. This new spiritual clothing signifies a radical change in us. Kids, when you put on Christ, it's just as strong as putting on your Pathfinder uniform or the adventure uniform that you wear, except for that it's not provided by you. It's something God gives you and puts on you but it's something so obvious, just like a uniform, like someone who's in the military or someone who's in our clubs or a doctor who puts on scrubs. It's clear to people because we put on, by the grace of Christ, this something given outside of ourselves. And it's obvious and it's apparent that there is a new consciousness, a new being, a, a new assignment that we're on. We put on Christ and we are encompassed by his authority and others get to experience his love in and through us. In John's vision, he saw a great multitude. The scripture says, many different races and languages standing before the throne and they were waving palm branches and singing praise songs just like we love to do. And all of in their diversity and culture and tongue, they're singing songs and they're wearing white robes but there's this unity in them. And he asked this question in Revelation, who are these ones in white robes? The answer comes that these are the ones who faced trials and suffering and tribulation, but have arrived at the place prepared for them. They didn't arrive with white robes. They didn't do it on their own. But the sacrifice of the cross of Christ has washed those robes clean so that they stand dazzling, radiant, full of light. The scriptures say in Malachi 3.2, it says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. I love this text because guess what? This is what Jesus does in us. You're not expected to clean up yourself. I'm not expected to clean up myself. He's like soap and fire and comes and makes us clean. The psalmist says it this way in Psalms 51. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. 
Because this is the core of Christianity. We could not do it on our own. In case you've forgotten, this is the heart of the good news. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. Jesus commends people in white robes, not because they were like, oh wow, they did a really good job with bleach. Good job. Y'all did a great job. But because they stood in the righteousness of Jesus. Because we can't do it on our own. But he does. The one who has the spirit, the one who holds the churches, he washes us clean, whiter than snow, so that we can stand radiant in his light. That's what we get to do. Just like when, I don't know, did any of you not have to prepare your uniform today? Did someone other than you prepare your uniform and get it ready for you? Oh, let's be honest. You're like, it is me. I didn't iron it. I didn't wash it. I didn't even put it on my own body, right? Some of you, right? No, you didn't. Let Jesus do that to you. Let him prepare it. Let him put it on your own body. You've been trying to do it in your own strength long enough. Let him put it on you. Let him stand beside you. Let him hold you and enliven you. It's not working to walk around and go through the motions, is it? But the Spirit of God wants to enliven you and wants to enliven the church. It says, yet there are these individuals, these ones who have come to me. They are all different. They're diverse, and we are too. We have different personalities and love languages and ways of operating. We have different musical tastes in worship. We have different tastes in so many things. But what do we have in common? What unites that great throng in Revelation? The grace of Christ. These are those who have come through because of the blood of the Lamb. These are those who have washed their robes because Jesus made a way for them. Robert Fulgram once asked a Greek philosopher named Dr. Papadaros, what is the meaning of life? Now, everyone in the class groaned at that when someone at the end of the lecture raised their hand and said, what's the meaning of life? Oh. But the professor could tell that he meant it, that he was really asking a question. And so he took a small mirror out of his wallet and he told this story. During World War II, I was a child in a poor remote village and one day on the road, I found where a German motorcycle had crashed and several pieces of the mirror were on the ground. I tried to put it back together to piece together the mirror, but it was futile. So I took the biggest piece and I started to scratch it on a stone to make it round. I began to play with this toy, becoming fascinated by the fact that I could make light go into places that wouldn't normally have light. So I would shine it into dark holes on the ground. I would get it into corners and crevices and closets that didn't have light. It became his challenge. As a child who didn't have many toys, this was his favorite one. As he continued to grow and as he continued to mature, he said he realized something. That as I grew, I understood this wasn't just a child's game. This was a metaphor of my life. I came to understand that I am not the light or the source of the light. But that light, truth, understanding, knowledge is there. 
and it will only shine in the dark if I reflect it. That is what I am about. That is the meaning of my life, to reflect the light. Fulgham continues, and then he took his small mirror and holding it carefully, he caught the bright rays of daylight streaming through the classroom window, and he reflected it onto my face and onto my hands folded on the desk. This is what it means to be alive, to reflect the light. We are not alive on our own. We are not cleansed on our own. But we take in the light and we bring the light into the world, into the corners where we live. We do not have light on our own today either, friends. We are zombies without the enlivening power of God. Because there is a kingdom of this world that will seek to have us do that which is opposed to the kingdom of God. There is a kingdom of this world that would have us walk through life numb, asleep, dead to the things of Christ. But the Spirit of God woos us to come alive, to come to Jesus because he is the only way to life. We can reflect the life. We can allow the Spirit of God to wake us to life. It says in the scriptures here in Revelation 3, those who are victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out their names from the book of life. You see, the ones who are living alive, connected to the source of life, will keep on living forever and always. It's just like the scripture that God set eternity in the hearts of people. Well, they'll keep on living. He says, I'll never blot your name out of the book of life. You'll just keep on living. The ones who are connected to the source of life will be alive. And Jesus says he will acknowledge their names before the Father and the angels you see, in that gymnasium, I walked there, I walked among those ruins, and I saw the statue, and part of it, I mean, it's beautiful, it's cool, because it's, it's ruins, right? But what I, the Spirit said to me as I walked among those ruins is, look how fleeting human acknowledgement is. They built this statue to him. They said he was the last stop for authority and for truth. And here's his statue. What matters more than anything, friends, is what Jesus says, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Amen. That's the acknowledgement I want. That's the acknowledgement we are to strive for with our life. That is the acknowledgement that matters. I will write your name in the book of life. I will not blot your name out. You will be with me forever. And I will acknowledge your name before my Father and the angels in heaven. How many of you want that kind of acknowledgement as the focus of your life? That is what matters more than anything. Jesus says, I want that for you. Whoever has ears, he says. Does anyone have ears today? Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus says, I invite you. I invite you to wake up to come to me, to give what only I can give to you. Come alive. <laughs>